So if we're going to shy away from fossil fuels, uh, then we need to really look at alternatives. What are the alternative carbon that we can have in order to make those uh, raw materials for the consumer products? Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is number 45 of 100 Conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, which is climate change. And we are recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, this was the Ultimo power station. It was built in 1899 and it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system into the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, we are now shifting our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. Here at Imurungmaji, Ray Johnston Yuanadi, Wiradjuri Yinabaladu. Hello friends, my name is Ray Johnston. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I was born and raised on Darug and Gundagata country and that's where I have responsibilities to community and country. And it is an honour today to be here with you on the unceded land of the Gadigal. And I wish to pay my deepest respects to their elders past and present for the sacrifices that they have made so that we can be here today. Now, as we begin today's conversation, it is important to remember and to acknowledge and also to respect that the world's first scientists and technologists and engineers are the First Nations peoples of this very continent from the world's oldest continuing cultures, and that's despite all attempts to erase them. Now, in my everyday work, I am a STEM journalist and a broadcaster, and I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people that are using science and technology to help the planet. And today, sitting beside me is one of those people. I have Rose Amal, who I am very much looking forward to chatting with today. Rose Amal is a Scientia professor at the University of New South Wales School of Chemical Engineering, where she is co-director of the ARC Training Centre for the Global Hydrogen Economy. Now, Rose is a chemical engineer who is recognised as a pioneer and a leading authority in the fields of fine particle technology, photocatalysis, and also functional nanomaterials. And her research focuses on designing nanomaterials for solar and chemical energy conversion applications. We're so thrilled to have you joining us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Now, let's start at the beginning, shall we? When you were growing up in Indonesia, what drove your passion for science in those early days? Well, I like um, mathematics and physics and chemistry in school and always fascinated in terms of how those science can actually explain a lot of the, what we see, you know, in nature. So that's the reasons that I'm I, I really passionate about that. And uh, actually, uh, only recently I found out because my brother was um, telling me when I was telling him about my work about harnessing solar energy and, and convert it to chemical energy that we can bottle it and, and, and you know, export it uh, to, to other countries. And he said to me when I was little, I'd ask him uh, that whether we can catch 
sunlight mm-hmm. and then bottle it up and use it at night time. So perhaps subconsciously, you know, when I was little, because of the, some of the blackouts happening in yeah. my, my um, town, that I always have that passion to sort of see how I can harness the solar energy and use it and store it. So was there anything in particular from your upbringing you think that instilled a desire for your research to reflect sustainability? I guess that that was probably during my undergraduate years because mm. it was seen that, you know, chemical engineering, uh, as a chemical engineer, you normally you will produce chemicals and you produce waste. And what are we going to do with the waste? We, we cannot just dispose it in the environment. So how we can do it sustainably? how we can develop process that will be able to make sure that the waste is minimised mm. and, and the waste is also treated before we discharge it to environment. So those are the things that uh, make me, sort of drive me to the research that looking into water treatment, air pollution control, and uh, now sort of moving into sustainable energy. Yeah. I can imagine that your career path could have taken lots of different directions. So was it really that sustainable part that sparked something in you? Does it, does it excite you to work on these kinds of projects? Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that we always sort of see is that, okay, we make this process, a lot of the things that we do is, is to meet our needs now. Mm. But sustainability is about future generations. How do we meet you know, the needs of ours now, but ensuring our future generation still have the capability to meet their needs. Let's talk about chemical engineering. Let's start at the beginning, though, by asking what is chemical engineering? You know, what, what sort of industries do chemical engineers work in? What problems are they trying to solve? Right. So chemical engineering is an engineering field that deals with, I would say, design and operation of chemical plants. They, they, they convert the raw materials to useful products um, in large quantity. So I have to stress the large quantity to meet the uh, society's needs. Uh, f- for example, it's uh, to produce ammonia, which we use as a fertilizer to feed our populations. Uh, and those process is actually known as the Haber-Bosch process. So we have the chemists that, 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 that develop the, the synthesis method to convert air, uh, nitrogen in air and hydrogen uh, to make ammonia. But then it's the chemical engineers that take that process to make it in large quantity so that we can feed 7.8 billion you know, populations now that we have. And, and th- those are the things that we're doing. And also the same things with the other um, applications like uh, looking at antibiotic penicillins, for example. It, we know that you know, Alice Fleming is the one who sort of invented penicillins. But then it's the chemical engineers that produce it in large quantities so that we'll be able to really go to those uh, wounded soldiers in, in World War II. Uh, th- those kind of things that chemical engineers do. And we sometimes also known as the universal engineers. What it means is that we work in almost every sector that to do with chemical. We work in food productions, we work in uh, water treatment, we work in pharmaceutical, uh, we work in fuel and energy. Um, and um, also sometimes we work, we work in, in aerospace as well. So anything wow. that it's uh, to do with sort of chemicals that chemical engineers sort of uh, have some role to play. So what opportunities would you say chemical engineering has to contribute to a net zero world? It seems like chemical engineering is, is everywhere really. So what, what opportunities are there? Well, one of the key roles is that to make sure that, you know, our chemical industry and some of our also, we call it the hard to abate industry like steel and aluminium, we were able to make sure that the carbon that will still need to be discharged will be able to be treated or, or, or recycled back and, and use it for 
uh, making some other products as well. So I see that that's one of the key roles of the chemical engineers is to meet the net zero. Uh, and chemical engineers also, because they design the plant and, and they operate the plant, they also know how to be able to design it in such a way to prevent the waste, for example, and also minimize the waste. And in chemical industry now, most of the, uh, uh, the, the raw materials that we use is actually from fossil fuels, fossil fuel based. So you, we're using fossil fuels based like petroleum, and then we uh, make uh, the, some of the hydrocarbons, which is becoming building blocks for consumer products. So if we're going to shy away from fossil fuels, uh, then we need to really look at alternatives. What are the alternative carbon that we can have in order to make those uh, raw materials for the consumer products? And one of the ways is to looking at you know, extracting the CO2 from air or CO2 from the emission, from uh, carbon emission from industry, and then recycle it back using renewable energy to make the, the, the chemicals, to make the raw materials for the consumer products. So I see chemical engineers will play a big role in order to meet that net zero targets that many governments has already pledged. Absolutely. So a lot of your work is driven by the process of catalyzation. Could you take us back to high school chemistry, please, just for a moment here, and tell us what is a catalyst exactly? Catalyst is a substance that you put into the chemical reaction so that you can speed up the rate. Um, and for chemical reactions to occur, normally you have the so-called activation energy. You have a barrier, a big barrier for the chemical reactions to occur. So the catalyst is actually reduce the, the, the barrier so that the chemical reaction can proceed swiftly. In that way is that, you know, you have make sure that the, 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 the rate is, is fast, so it's active, and also the catalyst can help to selectively drive the chemical reaction to the products you want. So the catalyst will also minimize the waste because if you do not selectively making that products, you're making a lot of other byproducts that you need to purify or you need to sort of discharge it to the environment. The beauty of the catalyst is also that you put in the chemical reactions that you can use it again and again. So although it's changed, it will return back to the original state that you can reuse it. Um, and, and the type of catalyst that you need to choose is to make sure that it's also stable because in industry, you do not want it to really um, you know, change it every day. You want okay. it to be able to use for years. So that, that's one of the way we, we choosing catalyst is looking at it's active, it's selective, and it's also stable. So your research, it focuses on harnessing solar energy to produce chemicals and fuels. You are a world leader in photocatalysis. And that is the process of using light as a catalyst to drive those chemical reactions. What drew you to specialise in photocatalysis? Well, we have abandoned sun energy, right? And it is free, the sun energy. Mm. In fact, that two hours of sunlight is actually enough in order to power the world for a year. That's the amount wow. of the, the amount of power, the intensities and energy we have. So. We, electrical engineer is very good already in terms of harness the solar energy to make the, the electricity. And uh, the, of course, this is one of the ways that we wanted to really keep on pursuing. But as a chemical engineers, we also see that we can harness the sun energy and make it as a chemical energy or store in a chemical energy and use it in order to power our chemical reactions. Um, in that way, we sort of look like uh, in a sense that, you know, not, not just using the electrons, you know, but also using it for molecules and, and chemicals as well. And also chemicals and molecules can be stored for much longer time it's because the electron, you can either use it or you have to use battery to store it. And, and right. storage of battery is sort of limited in terms of time and the capacity. So it's, it's 
many different ways that we can use the sun energy. Now, you are the head of the Particles and Catalysis Research Group at University of New South Wales. One of the projects that you're working on there is Shine 2.0, which is demonstrating how sustainable chemical processes can close the carbon loop. Firstly, what is the carbon loop? Okay. Um, I mentioned a little bit that because that in chemical industry, you will always produce some sort of carbon uh, carbon dioxide. And uh, that's, the, that's the reason that we co- always call that we wanted to meet the net zero target, the net zero carbon target, mm. not the zero carbon. Means that we will always still produce some CO2 in, in some of the processes. So close the carbon loop, it means that we recycle the CO2 back. So we, we generate the carbon, but then we close the loop so we do not emit the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We recycle it back. And, and with the SHINE project, what we are doing there is, is just sort of to demonstrate, I would say it's the future uh, of chemical engineering. It is looking at using the carbon dioxide that could be coming from air because uh, we, we still need to co- lower the concentration of carbon dioxide in atmosphere. So we're using the, the, the sun energy, which is, could be the heat of the sun and the light of the sun, in order to activate catalysts to convert the CO2, carbon dioxide, and water to something that is useful. So in the SHINE project, we have the carbon dioxide and we have water. We have a solar collector, which can heat up the, the, the photoreactors that we have there. And we have a catalyst in there. And the carbon dioxide and the water, uh, the hydrogen that coming in from water. So we also have a solar panel. In the SHINE project, we have a solar panel, which will drive the electrolyzer uh, to split water to hydrogen. So now we have hydrogen that is produced from solar and water. And then we have the carbon dioxide coming in, which go into the photoreactors that heat up by the solar collector. And the, the, the carbon dioxide, the hydrogen will then form methane or methanol. And those are the uh, raw materials that use our building blocks for a lot of consumer products. So those methanol and methane used to be that you need to get it from fossil fuels, right. for cracking the fossil fuels. So instead of using fossil fuel, cracking from fossil fuel to produce those raw materials, uh, or even methanol or methane can be used as chemical and fuels, we're using CO2, carbon dioxide, that is from emission or from, or from direct air captures, and water and the sun energy in order to really close that carbon loop to produce something that is uh, of value. But uh, using CO2, I think that's the ultimate world, probably it's the holy grail, to be able to use the waste and, and reduce also the concentrations of the carbon dioxide in atmosphere. Currently, the concentration of uh, carbon dioxide in most atmosphere is 417 ppm. Uh, and in order to really meet the, the net zero, uh, we will need to also reduce the concentration of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, you are the program lead for the hydrogen production at the Hydrogen Energy Research Centre. Can you tell us why you are focusing on hydrogen as an energy source and where do you see it fitting in in the overall renewable energy landscape? So hydrogen has a lot of potential, although it's, it's the tiniest molecule, but uh, hydrogen, because when it's a combusted, it's used, it doesn't produce any carbon. Because when you com- combust hydrogen, it will produce water. And so hydrogen, I see it as a carriers that it actually can, can bring the renewable energy to the sectors that you cannot directly electrify, such as chemical industry, for example. Right. So you can produce hydrogen using the renewable energy, and these molecules then can be used in, in industry uh, to either to use it for chemical productions 
are or are also can be used in terms of as a, as a fuel cells as well to generate electricity later on. And with hydrogen as well, it can be used in terms of storing the, the renewable energies like sunlight or, or the wind energies as well, because it can store longer, much longer compared to battery. Um, hydrogen, you can store it for weeks, for months and for years. When, whenever you need to use it, so hydrogen is there, you can just use it and power the fuel cells as well. So there's a lot of range of the application that we can use hydrogen for. And, and therefore, that is the reason that a lot of people uh, turn into hydrogen and looking at the, the potential of using it. For example, Australia, we, we also have our national hydrogen strategy sort of uh, written up in, in 2019 because we see the potential of using these molecules in order to meet the net zero targets. So tell me about hard to abate sectors and how hydrogen can help address issues of those sectors. What, what does that mean? Hard to abate industry means that those are the industry that you cannot really use in the renewable energy directly. Right. Um, say, for example, airplane. Currently, there is no battery technologies that we'll be able to use in order to power commercial airplanes, for example. Solar-powered planes are very small. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So that's the reason that we, we see something like hydrogen will be able to help us in order to make sustainable aviation fuel. Okay. Uh, so hydrogen can be used in order to convert CO2 in order to make e-kerosene, power kerosene. So, so looking at using the electrons from the renewable energy and directly electrifying the airplane because you're using that the energy and the electron to make the hydrogen. And sustainable aviation fuel is one of them. Steel is another one. Because currently in steel industry, we're using a lot of coke and coal in order to reduce the iron ore to make the, uh, the iron metal. So hydrogen, again, is, could be used in terms of uh, th those processes. Rather than using coke and coal, using fossil fuel, we're going to use hydrogen because those are the ones that, again, you cannot using the renewable energy, the electrons from the, the renewable energy directly for those processes as well. So as we hear more about hydrogen, there's, there's almost like a rainbow of colours being used to describe it. Yeah, could, could you tell us a bit about the difference between grey and green and blue hydrogen, for example? Okay. Well, scientifically, hydrogen is uh, only one, one yes. kind. <laughs> so hydrogen is, you've got two hydrogen atoms that share electrons and bonded by covalent bond. But because now we're going to use hydrogens in order to decarbonize and in order to meet the net zero target, so we need to be very careful of how the hydrogen is actually produced. Um, so as you mentioned, that rainbow color of hydrogen. So brown hydrogen is, is, is sort of hydrogen that they consider as produced by brown coal. So it's so, dirty, so dirty, dirty hydrogen. It's dirty yeah. hydrogen. So you've got a lot of CO2 that coming out from that. Uh, the, 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 there's another one called grey hydrogen if you're using the natural gas in order to, to, to using steam methane, methane reforming process to make the hydrogen. Again, there's a lot of CO2 coming out. Mm. With the blue hydrogen is actually the brown and the grey hydrogen, but the CO2 that's produced during the productions of hydrogen is captured uh, and, and, and stored or utilised. So that becoming blue because the carbon is not emitted anymore right. to the um, atmosphere. In fact, that when we're talking about the carbon uh, emitted, carbon dioxide emitted, it's roughly about 900 million um, tons of uh, carbon dioxide that is actually now produced or emitted in the atmosphere when we're producing hydrogen. Because currently hydrogen is actually produced by coal gasification and steam methane reforming. So that's the reason that you know, we need to really 
clean up this process as well, make this process more sustainable. Green hydrogen is the hydrogen that produced using um, the electrolyzer to split the water, uh, from the water split to become hydrogen and oxygen. And the green hydrogen is that when you split the water, you need the electricity. Then the electricity has to come in from the renewable energy. It has to come from either solar, wind, or hydropower. If you're using electrolyzer to split water, making hydrogen, but the electricity coming from coal or from gas, it doesn't count as it's, green. It's brown then, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's yeah. still brown because, it's the, it. <laughs> because the, the, the source of the power is still the, the, the dirty uh, fuels. So that's the different colors of of uh, hydrogen. So hydrogen coming from Shine 2.0 would be green? That would be green because we're using the solar panel to split the water to make the hydrogen. Fantastic. I've got my head around that now. So how much hydrogen is being used around the world currently and, and how much of that would be green hydrogen? So currently there's about 94 million tonnes. In 2021, there's 94 million tonnes that's actually produced. And, and majorities, uh, I would say that 99%, it's produced by either the, the coal or, or the gas as well. It's very limited wow. amount that produced by the uh, renewable energy and electrolyzer. Um, and so that's one of the things that if, you know, if we're going to really start to produce hydrogen um, or, or use hydrogen, we need to start to make sure that the hydrogen we produce for the chemical industry, because most of the hydrogen currently is mainly used for ammonia production. Uh, or, or for uh, refinery, uh, and, and those are the things that we need to start to make it green first. Do you think that green hydrogen will end up being the most used type of hydrogen in the future? In the future, probably by 2050, yes, but by 2030, because there's a few targets, like by 2030 we wanted to cut our emission by 50%, I would say that probably a combination of blue hydrogen and the green hydrogen. So that's the project of Shine will be good because the project of Shine is looking at the carbon dioxide that's emitted. You know, if we're going to still using the fossil fuel to make the hydrogen, this carbon dioxide that, that emitted can be utilised and make the raw materials for hydrocarbons and for the chemical industry. So making that hydrogen becoming blue. Mm. What changes need to happen within the industry now to convert more to green hydrogen? Currently, the limiting is factors is the cost and the cost is because the electricity cost is still high and also the electrolyzer cost is, is, is still high. So I guess that in order to make it uh, more feasible is that we need to make the electrolyzer sort of uh, more efficient as well because the efficiency will then making the cost to, to be lower. Uh, and I, I guess that also productions at scale because a lot of the times most of those technology if you produce at scale uh, then the, the cost will be coming down. So have, be able to really uh, improve the performance of the electrolyzer. And so this is one of the things that we're working on as well is, is to looking at how to improve the electrolyzer performance by developing better catalysts, more efficient catalysts, uh, and also cheaper catalysts because some of the electrolyzers are using platinum as the catalyst. Uh, and, and platinum is very, expensive, isn't yeah, expensive. it? <laughs> so that's the reasons that our work is to try to looking at reducing the loading. And, and some of the projects that we're doing is we can use 20 times less of the platinum uh, in the electrolysis system and still giving the same performance or using other metals like the nickel and iron, which has more abundance and cheaper as well. So those are the things that I, th I guess that we still need to do more in terms of the research and, and, and scale up. Uh, to, to make sure that we can really produce that, the green hydrogen at scale.
Do you see this as an opportunity for Australia? Do you think that we will be exporting hydrogen and green hydrogen specifically in the future? Well, Australia has plenty of renewable energy, like plenty of sunshine and also have uh, plenty of wind energies as well. And I see that that's great potential. In fact, that the World Energy Council identified Australia as the, has the potential as the giant for mm. exporting hydrogen. Um, one of the problems ex exporting hydrogen is that hydrogen is very light. So it, you, you need to comp compress it or you need to liquefy it if you wanted to export the hydrogen uh, and transport it. I see that there's a lot of potential that we can use the hydrogen to produce some other products. For example, ammonia that I mentioned, because globally we require 150 million tons of ammonia. So we can really using the green hydrogen to make green ammonia and export that as well. Or we can also export our uh, steel, green steel, for example. So there's a lot of opportunities that we can use the form of hydrogen in order to export it. Uh, not necessarily just the hydrogen. Yes, definitely hydrogen is one of the products, but uh, I would see, say is that we probably have opportunity to produce, I call it power to X. So renewable power to different sort of products. Right. Hydrogen, green hydrogen, green ammonia, maybe green methanol as well, because green methanol is also can be used in terms of for, uh, as a shipping fuel, uh, and also sustainable aviation fuel, which I mentioned earlier. So storing energy is something that's becoming more important with the growing uptake of renewable energy technologies. And lithium-ion batteries are the most common solution for this at the moment. Now, the research centre posits hydrogen as another method of storage. Could you talk a little bit about why? So with lithium-ion, currently the energy density is about 200 or uh, 250 watt-hour per kilogram. So the predictions that maybe you can go up to about 400 you know, watt hour per kilogram. So for electric vehicle, that's fine. Passengers car, that you, if you just drive for a short distance. But if you want a, a, a long haul distance, um, and that you cannot because the battery, you know, you need to be uh, charged again. So that's why you need a sort of, a, for example, the fuel cells will be advantage if, if for those kind of applications as well. And also for um, heavy machinery, as well, you cannot, if you wanted to use in renewable power, you can't really use the battery because it's, it's just the, the energy density is not enough. So again, uh, something like fuel cells will be the one that you can use. So heavy truck uh, in mining, for example, and, and when we're talking about, you know, sustainable uh, and renewable energy, we need to make sure also those industry like mining, it's also will be becoming sustainable, becoming green and clean because all the minerals that require to make solar panel to make the electrolyzer, to make the wind turbine, that also have to be clean, have to be green, so that we can claim that, you know, whatever the energy that we actually use is really green as well. So the, we, I see that the hydrogen will be used in terms of those type of applications as well as a sort of hydrogen fuel cells for the heavy trucks, the machinery, uh, to replace some of the fossil fuels uh, or diesels that currently they use a lot in mining. You've supervised 73 PhD students. This is an absolutely huge achievement. And one of the things that you've said that you enjoy most about your job is teaching your students and seeing their confidence grow. So how important is having supportive teachers, you know, nurturing those long-lasting and impactful careers for the STEM industry? Well, 
I think I had a very good example when I was a student and, and also probably a young um, uh, engineer, uh, a young academic, because I'm sort of blessed with, I call them the giant, which always <laughs> lend their, their broad shoulders so that I can stand to see further. And so I always, in my career, to, to sort of see whether I can help anybody, I can mentor and sponsor the, the young one so that they can stand on my shoulder to see further as well. I think this is very important because that um, I always believe that I can only do so much but individual. But if I can inspire even just 10, 10 people, 10 students, right? right? Yeah. And each of them can inspire 10 others to work on something sustainable to really make this world a better place for everybody to live in, then this is a domino effect. And, 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 and that sort of will, will spread. I think that that's the reason that I was already passionate that... Uh, Yes, I'm passionate about my research, sustainable research, but I'm more passionate in terms of transferring my knowledge, transferring my skills, and also inspire them. Seeing all of those different you know, projects and, and PhDs coming out of the works, you must see a, a broad range of different solutions being presented for climate change. How important do you think it is for researchers and, and innovators to collaborate on this? It is critical, right? It is critical. I can collaborations. It's not just one profession. We need the electrical engineers in order to give us the green, cheap electron, and we need the chemical engineer to use the electron to make the molecules. We need the mechanical engineer to do to build the machinery, and we need the economists to be able to tell us whether that's economical. We need the social scientists to sort of see how's the impact with the societies as well. So we, we do need the whole range of things. And, and like, for example, in the training centers that, that uh, I'm co-directing, we actually cover all range. We have the technology side, looking at hydrogen production, hydrogen safety. We have the value chain and business model, which we have the economists helping us to looking at the techno-economic feasibility study. We also have the social scientists to sort of say the impact of the technologies to the community. So we, when we you know, build the, the, the electrolyzers in, in the, the remote area, what is that impact? How we can really also bring the community together and knows that how valuable you know, those, those, those projects are as well. So I think collaborations is the key to mm. the success. Fantastic. Well, Rose, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Ray. Thank you. To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition, or join us for a live recording. Go to 100climateconversations.com. Thank you.